morning and open your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4, and we're in verses 1 through 7. If you're at 1 Kings, you're close. You're getting warmer. 2 Kings chapter 4, if you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew, uh, that is on page 309. But 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. And let's hear God's word this morning. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in, And shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all those vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Please be seated. And let's pray. We've sung a song for the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. Let's, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit's help as we look at his word this morning. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being your people. We thank you so much for the privilege of having your word Help us now through your Holy Spirit to understand and interact with what is being um, communicated uh, by you to us through your word. Thank you for the privilege of sitting and listening and thinking and learning. In Jesus' name, amen. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is the Lord. God is in charge of his world. Everything that he created, he maintains and sustains. God is sovereign. We've been talking about that for the last several weeks. And as we kind of wrap things up and and put it together for what it means for our life, what does it mean for the Christian that God is sovereign in his world? Everything that happens on a day-by-day basis, every miracle that happens where he intervenes in his world for his wonderful purpose, He is in control, and we understand this. God is not just strategy, but he's also operations. Strategy and operations. God is in charge of his world, and the reason it's a good world and a good place and that we can have hope is because there's a God who's in charge maintaining things. Something else about God. God loves his people, and he constantly intervenes on their behalf. God loves his people. Listen to Psalm 37, verses 23 through 25. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. The psalmist, this is David writing this psalm, he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken 
or his children begging for bread. We have no idea what's coming down the pike in this world. We do not know. There are people making decisions, perhaps right now in some place, in some, some realm, and those decisions will reverberate, and they might have a great effect on us. We do not know, and we're not in control. God is big, and God is strong, and we are not. We're not as strong as we think we are. God is the strong one. God is the provider, and we can take comfort in that. So this morning, uh, I wanted to look at this text of God's provision of another person, a very weak person, a very uh, desperate person. And we're looking at three things from the text this morning, um, uh, leaning on what my professor from seminary, Dr. Davis, uh, had to say and and how it was outlined uh, for me back uh, when I was a young seminarian. Uh, But these three things from these seven verses. First, God's desperate people. That's verse 1. Second, God's typical tendencies. That's in verses 2 through 6. And finally, the third, God's overflowing kindness from verse 7. So a quick note and a help on biblical interpretation because we can look at the Bible and people take the Bible and we make all sorts of things. Uh, If we're not careful, we shoehorn our own agenda into it. And just in a real quick way, I wanted to say, take the Bible And if your first impulse is to make it a man-centered interpretation of the Bible, that's the wrong impulse. What does the Bible say about God? What is God telling us about himself? And if we start there, then it spreads out, and then we we can put ourselves and God's people into that text. What does God say about himself? Um, The simplest explanation is usually the best. And and the simplest one is, what do we learn about God? It would be easy to take a text like this one and say, well, the empty vessel, that is your heart, and your heart has to be an empty vessel. And if you open your heart, then God will just pour that oil, which is the symbol of the Holy Spirit, into it and make it about you opening your heart. We're going to miss a whole lot, and we're going to go on a wrong path if we start there and think about those things. We're going to get to verse 6 when they finally run out of empty vessels. And we're going to say, oh, if she'd only believed him more, why, they could have had a whole operation. They could still be gathering vessels and pouring things even today, but they just, she limited herself. The text doesn't say anything about that. When you look at the text, what does God say about himself? And then how do we see what God says about how he deals with his desperate people? Uh, It's seven verses. It's a woman with no name. But it's a woman uh, that we could probably all identify with, and we know people, and we might be in a situation like her. So look at it that way. And first of all, let's see, as we're looking to God and about God, think about God's dealing with God's desperate people. Who was this woman? What was she facing? Verse 1 tells us, she was dealing with death. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And she's grieving. She's hurting. We think about people that have lived and they've made their plans and they've gotten things lined up in their lives and they think it's going to go one way. And then what happens is what happens in this earth. Death visits. 
and she's a widow. And a widow is always hard. I hate to say, well, it was harder in those days and then in these days and all that. It's always hard to be a widow. It's always hard to start out, to have the two become one, to have your plans, to have your kids, to look forward to the future, and then death comes. You have no idea how this uh, man died, but he was gone. She was a widow, and she was dealing with death. It says also she was dealing with financial ruin. She says, the servant of my husband is dead. He always feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Not only was she facing the loss of of her counterpart, her husband, but there was massive debt. And along with that debt uh, came no means to pay, except the third thing that was going to happen. She was going to lose her children. She'd be all alone. The emotional toll of separation. Looking at those sons and their lives of servitude, the slavery and bondage that they were headed for uh, to work and take and pay off that debt. They'd had a godly structured home in which they operated. And now that was gone. What was she thinking? We know we currently live in a culture that's working hard to drive a wedge between moms and their kids, even beginning while they're even in the womb. There's a culture that's trying to separate parental love and motherly love for their babies. But the natural instinct that God placed in would have been the natural instinct for her there. And not only was her husband going to be gone, but what did she think when she looked at those boys? And that further separation... And that further, how was she going to make it in that culture? Think of the grief. Think of what a mother would do for her kids and what this mother could not do for her kids. Uh, think of, uh, I was thinking of, of Les Mis, the, the, uh, uh, the movie or the book, where that mother, Feline, and, and the, the love she had for her daughter, and she could even die knowing her daughter would be provided for. This mother did not have that. She had a gone husband to the grave and she had two boys that were on the verge of being taken. But do you see her other question? Almost an accusation. In addition to this, there's that same thing that we fall back on. Uh, She said, um, you know that your servant feared the Lord. You know he's dead, but you know he feared the Lord. And it's almost as as if she's saying, Isn't there a formula for this? If I do this, do this, do this, do this, then aren't things supposed to be this way? And we all fall back on a formula. Formula we have. If I do this, God has to do that. And God hadn't done that. And so now there's even a a question in her faith. We used to call it the growing kids God's way illusion. If I do this, you grow your kids God's way, then they will do this. Well, sometimes it doesn't happen that way, at least not immediately. And it's not you do this, you do that, you do this in your marriage, you do this, everything financially. Sometimes you can follow every biblical financial principle and ruin can come on you. And we think, if I do this, God has to do that. Follow the principles is what we must do anyway. But it's a crazy, wild world. 
And we do the right things because of the right things to do. And we see what happens. And generally, you follow these principles. And generally, we've seen how things work out. But this man loved the Lord. And he was dead. And his kids were, were going to be taken into slavery. Don't let people tell you that the outcome in this fallen world will automatically insulate you from trouble. What does John 16 tell us in verses 32 and 33? Behold, the hour is coming, Jesus said. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Jesus said, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Here's how Dr. Davis put it in his commentary, talking about her legitimate questions of following God, yet feeling hardship. He said this, This disciple of Elisha and servant of Yahweh had bucked the religious trends of the day. It wasn't popular to be a Christian in that day, to follow. And you can look at church history and you can see what was going on. But this guy said, I'm going to live for the Lord and love the Lord. His wife was with him. They were raising their kids to live for the Lord. They bucked the religious trends of the day. Uh, He swam against the stream of his culture and government. And yet his loved ones faced disaster. Do you feel the rub she expresses? Don't we meet this in a hundred different ways? Here's a Christian woman who has served Christ sacrificially and now her cancer has returned. Here is a farmer in the Mississippi Delta who confesses Christ openly and yet his crops have failed two years running and he's going to lose his farm. Or here is an earnest Christian husband and father who's raising and teaching his children in the fear of the Lord and a drunk driver smashes into his wife and children when they were returning from a school basketball game and kills them all. Your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come. Don't we all say that and think those things during times of disaster? This woman faces this perennial mystery and seems to be asking if Yahweh, if God, has any provision for them in this fix. But see one more thing. What does she do in the midst of her doubt and in the midst of of her disaster? She does come to God, doesn't she? She does come limping to God. Her faith, even in the midst of her her depression. Where did she go? To God's man. What did she do? She made her status known and she waited for an answer from God. She didn't tell God what God should do. She didn't say what she would do if she were God. Think of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20.12. There's an invasion coming. And he said what we all have to say, have said, will say, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Sovereign God, gaze at God. Glance at your situation. Sovereign God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're looking to you, God. We know who's strong. We know who's weak. We know where we've got to go. To you, O Lord. And then see the privilege in her situation, in her distressing situation. She comes to Elisha, to God's man, and what does he do? Well, you're just a no-name. 
You're not significant for the kingdom. Don't you realize I deal with kings and, and, and worldly big events? And, and so uh, let, let's find somebody to deal with your issue. No, he immediately, representing God, God's man looks at her and says, how can I help? What can we do? This is significant because there was the king, and, and the kingdom was divided into two parts. There was Israel, and there was Ju- Judea, Judah, and Judea. And, and the, the kingdom of Israel is where these people were located. And these two kings had gotten together to do a political alliance. And Elisha was called into the scene. And Elisha had told even the king of Israel, listen, I am not going to have anything to do with you. This guy was defiant. This is in 2 Kings 3, 13 and 14, one page back in your, in, your, in your Bibles. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do to you, with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. He didn't have the time for that wicked king, but he sure had the time to drop everything for that destitute woman with no name. God did look at the widow and see her. What do we take from this? God is not interested in your earthly status as a criteria for whether or not he will look at you and see you. He is interested in his relationship with you, and he will give you the time of day. Listen to Hebrews. Listen to this beautiful passage. Apply it to yourself. Even if you think that you're not important to to anybody, including God, listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what do we do then? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. She brought her doubts, she brought her pile of of impending doom, and she went to the right place. She went to God. First thought of the man of God is, how can I help? How is God going to help? And you and me, we have access to God in our time of need and at every other time. God's never going to put you on hold. God's never going to say, take a number. Take a number, we'll get to you. And you picture these little places like at the supermarket deli. They're all standing there, and they, that poor guy's slicing all the meat and cheese, running around, doing all that stuff. And here's the number, here's the number, and they're jockeying in and all that. God's not doing that to you at the deli. You don't have a little tab number, and he'll get you when he gets to you. He doesn't leave a message and say, um, currently, uh, our operators are very busy. Leave a number, and I'll call back uh, and you don't know whether to take that chance or not because you don't know if they're going to call back so you, most of us just hang on the line anyway. Um, that's not God. You come to God, God says, I love you, I'm listening to you, I'm here for you. You have access to God in your time of need and at every other time, by the way. Transition uh, sentence, the, 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 the text goes to verses 2 through 6 where we consider God's typical tendencies. What does God typically do? Now, you can't take a text like this and say, every single time in every situation, God does this. This is an illustration of of the principles that God uses when he deals with people. And so it's absolutely biblically true. 
and we take the principles about God, then we take stories like this that God tells us about himself that, that put flesh on, on those truths. And, and in these situations, what does God do? What's God's tendency? First of all, where does God begin? What did, the, what did God through Elisha say to her? What shall I do to you in verse 2? Tell me, what have you in the house? All right, let's start with where you are. What do you got in your house? What's going on? Uh, you, have a, you don't have a husband in your house. You have a lot of bills in your house. But what do you have in your house? And she says, I've got a flask of oil and that's it. Now, this is not like an episode of MacGyver where, okay, you can sell that oil, you can do this and all that. It's not like strategizing. Her response was the same way that we would say, I don't have two nickels to rub together. All I've got is this flask of oil. But God starts with that. What do you got going on? Where's your situation? And her situation, she admitted again, I am absolutely in trouble. She didn't say, I have a flask of oil, plus I've got a floorboard where I've got a bag of gold. No, no floorboard, no gold. I have nothing. I have nothing. The woman had nothing. And she admitted to God she had nothing, just that flask of oil. And that was the start. Can't take that to Antiques Roadshow and find out it's really worth a million dollars either. That's just a common, ordinary flask of oil. That's all she had. You need God. You're in trouble. We like to say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That's not what they're saying with this. They're saying, there's nothing. No cliche, no, just optimistically think hard enough. I need God. I'm in a jam. Then you see him. He starts with that. But, but this was an interesting point to me. See, God concealed. Uh, twice, it's, he says, shut the door. Shut the door. Look at verses 3 uh, through 5, the first part of 5. He said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few, then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons. And she went from him and she shut the door behind herself and she did that. Uh, what's with this shut the door business? What's with this quiet waiting on God? Uh, sometimes what God does in people's lives is not for public proclamation. Sometimes it's just to help you. Not so you can go out and, 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 and say, look at me and God work together on this deal, or I must be special because look what God did for me. There's nothing wrong with saying God is great, and there's nothing wrong. We have scriptural times where we, where we are told to say, look at the good works of God in our life. But not every situation in your life is just for you to put it on Facebook uh, as something you and God are doing. Sometimes God's just working with you. Just shut the door. Shut the door. Right now you've got an issue. God's going to take care of you. It's private. I was thinking about back in Bible college when we were there, uh, oh, all those years ago, 30 or 40 or something years ago now. But we would have these, at the end of the day, the college I went to, we had to get in groups, and three rooms would come in together. We had, each room had a, each little group had what they called a prayer leader, a student that was assigned, and he kind of led the devotional and, and, and all that. And, and it ran the same format. It was 15 minutes. Praises, prayer requests, sing a song, somebody be assigned a scripture, 
pray and close. And I just remember this young guy one time, and whatever your prayer request was, he could top it. <laughs> whatever your praise was, he could top it. I've got a praise. I didn't know how I was going to wash my clothes, but my mom sent me $5, and I have, can get the cores to wash my clothes. I got a praise. I got $10. <laughs> pray for me. My grandmother's very sick. Pray for me. All four of my grandparents are very sick. And, and we do these things, and we, we try, and, and almost our status with God and God's working. And he just said, in this case, shut the door. Get the things, and you and God, revel in that. See what God's doing for you, and you don't have to make everything a Christian T-shirt that you wear. Shut the door. It's possible sometimes that we can make people feel small with our testimonies. It's possible that God's working differently in different people's lives. And sometimes we can feel small if God's delivered us from something and somebody else is struggling and God in his wonderful, loving wisdom is not working the same way or at the same pace with somebody else. Well, God delivered me from this. And, and somebody else goes, why, why not me? He said, just go shut the door. Get, get these vessels, shut the door. God's going to work with you personally, you and your kids. God involved her. That's the next point. God could have said, go home and sleep. And when you wake up, magically what will appear? A bunch of vessels of oil worth a lot of money in your house. But God does that. Typically, God involves us as he's working in us. We're not saying with Ben Franklin, God helps those who help themselves. We're not saying that. We're not saying you make your own luck, uh, which is kind of a worldly uh, way of doing things. But we are saying when God's working in a life, God loves to bring us along. And a lot of times it's the teaching. It's the working and involving us. And God said, go get the oil. I was... There was a Christian song where the singer said, he chooses to use us. And she was having her faith built up. And what do you think those little kids saw? Think of the delight. We don't know how old these boys were. They were old enough to work. They were valuable enough for the creditor to take them and put them to work and make them work off debts. Uh, We don't know. They weren't men, obviously. They were boys. But what did they think? They got the vessels. They gathered them. Maybe they even, like, like typical siblings do, they had a contest and they were trying to see who could get the most vessels. But imagine their eyes pop wide open. That oil pours out and it keeps pouring. Go get the other one. It keeps pouring, keeps pouring. What were they seeing and what was God teaching those little people as he was doing his work in their lives? What was going on? And God, as he heals us and delivers us, he shows us and he helps our faith. Even in these times, God involved her. And finally, let us consider God's overflowing kindness. And that's in verse 7. Well, it stopped flowing, filled up every vessel in the house. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Sell, pay, then live. Not just the immediate crisis being solved, but ongoing sustenance. Ongoing. 
How about spiritually in our lives with our immediate crisis? Some sin, some desperation, some emotionally terrible time, and you turn to God and you repented and you said, God, get me out of this. We were laughing. Uh, did this come up? This was in the men's group Wednesday morning about how we try and make sometimes these deals with God. <laughs> oh, I cut my deal with God, or I attempted to. God didn't keep his end of the bargain. I'm a little kid. I'm a terrible baseball player who loves baseball. <laughs> and it's the last inning of the city championship, Oskaloosa, Iowa, city championship. And usually I'm a last inning substitute because you've got to let everybody play. And I can catch the ball, but I'm a no-hitter. And the bases are loaded. We came back, and we're down by one run. And all I've got to do is get a walk out of this thing. And there's nobody's name to call. I have to go up there. And there's the pitcher throws three balls. And I'm like, good, I'm good. I just keep this bat on my shoulder. If one of these is going to be another ball, I'll walk. It'll be tied, and it'll be on somebody else. The pressure's gone. Strike one, strike two. And I cut the deal with God. God, I will do my Sunday school lesson for the whole year if you'll just let this be a ball. I offered God a year of, of me preparing for Sunday school because in, in those church I was in, we had these lessons that we did ahead of time. And you know what? Strike three, you're out, son. God didn't keep the deal. Oh, we want to make a deal with God. Oh, we want to make a deal with God. Well, God never said he would keep the deal. That was me dictating the terms to God of what the deal should be. And we dictate our terms. No, we come to God God delivers us, and then he just says, keep on living. You had a time in your life, perhaps. Maybe that's what God used to bring you to himself. And you placed your faith in him through his son, Jesus. And you were wondering, was that a foxhole conversion? The woman didn't have enough just to pay her debts. He said, sell it, pay your debts, and now you can just live on on the extra. God gave you salvation. God gave you forgiveness for your sins. But God said, I didn't just save you for the moment. My salvation is an ongoing spiritual investment in your life. Not just a foxhole. You were saved from sin's power and from sin's curse. We talk about double cure. One of the old hymns we sing says, be for me a double cure. We need a double cure. The woman needed immediate relief, but she needed to live with her boys. And she got both of those from God. God is giving and generous and good. Uh, John Calvin, and then we'll go to our applications, but Calvin had a good quote on this um, where he said, Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace. You got two things. You thought you were just getting saved. You got a couple of things. Uh, Namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father. All of a sudden, you, you have a father in heaven. That's one thing he gave you. But along with that, Sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. You've got what you need to live now that you didn't have before. And you've been given these things. The woman was given the oil 
to pay our debts and the oil to live. We apply this. Just three things I want to say to us. God is your God, not just for when you're in trouble, though he shines in your trouble. Secondly, God is your God who saves you for something beyond just your trouble. Sell, pay, live. Confess your sins. Put your faith in Jesus. Let Jesus' death on the cross be the substitute for your sin. It's paid in full. The telestai, it's paid. But now you get to live. You get to live like a Christian. You didn't get that before. You didn't understand what it meant. You thought you might have, and maybe you hurt enough, and there, there was some stuff coming in. But now you get to see what it is to be forgiven and set free and live with a purpose and a meaning in your life that matters for eternity. Finally, I just wanted to, to, uh, to, to, to point out something that I've, I've said before in history. Uh, later on in this verse, he's, he's going to talk about this king named Omri. Omri was an important king in, in Israel's history. Omni, Omri affected things uh, uh, in politics and history. How many verses in God's scripture were given to Omri? Six. How many to this nameless woman? Seven. Uh, I, did a, I did a thing because I, I woke up, I went to bed thinking about all this and stuff, and I woke up with a, an old song from the 70s running in my head. And before I turned in my gospel bluegrass on the way in, I listened to this one. Do you remember this song? And I even remember the, who, who sang it. Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. You don't have to be a star to be in my show. Remember that song? Uh, throw away some of the lyrics they tried to plug in, but understand that God's saying, you don't have to be some celebrity. You don't have to have this natural talent. You are a person who God loves. God has his loving purpose going on. He's got what's going on that matters. And you don't have to, to, to be somebody to get his attention. You're not like a little flock of birds. You see these nature films and the, the mama bird comes with a worm and you see all these little baby birds craning their necks. You hear the, remember that from when you were a kid and they showed you these nature films in school? And they're all, they're all struggling and, and they're hoping and, and if they stick their beak up highest and crane their neck, maybe that worm drops into their mouth. That's not you and God. God knows your name. He knows your address. He loves you. The blood uh, is on your doorpost, the blood of Christ, and and the angel of of death has passed over, and you've got angels of mercy, and you are important to God, uh, even if you don't feel like you're important in this world. And you take that. You go to God. You realize uh, God's the one. God's the star. And we are people that God loves and, and, and benefits, and we don't have to compete with one another for God's love and affection. He said, everyone who comes to me, I'll receive, I will in no wise cast out. What do we do with this? Well, we have no idea, as I said, what's going to happen. It could be great blessings. Although I was at the store yesterday on my way home from here, and I heard the the people, like I've never heard people complain about prices in the store, and they're playing all this happy music, 
you know, designed to make you put more stuff in your thing. Uh, don't rock the boat. Boy, that was, I saw a guy sing along with that, and I caught his eye, and he looked embarrassed. And I said, hey, they play great music. Even while they're raising the prices, they make us feel good about it, right? And he's like, yeah. Um, heard a couple of women saying, recession? There's, sarcastically, there's no recession. And they're, they're deciding what to put in their cart and what not to put in their cart. And, and we have no idea what's coming down the line. So what? You've got a God. Never have I seen the righteous forsaken. Never have I seen his children begging bread. God, I'm coming to you. I'm trusting in you. I don't know what life circumstances are going to be. I don't know the bad news. I don't know the knock on the door at 2 o'clock that's coming my way when it's coming. I'm trusting in you, God. I have God. I have God. God has me. God saved me. I'm saved by God. And we can live a world of hope and we can laugh and we can joke and we can, can, can adapt and we can do whatever it takes because God is always the provider he's always been for his people. And I wanted to take this passage as an illustration of God's sovereignty and how that applies to our life. You be a Christian. If you've repented, you've put your faith in Jesus, hold your head up, shoulders back, Let's enjoy the good things that are coming. And they are good things that are coming because we're Christians. And on the other side of that, we get to the end, there's heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your sovereignty. Help us now. Thank you for, for as that gets illustrated at your table here in a moment. And thank you for the salvation you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.